This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning, everyone. I'm Dan. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm part of the staff team here at Seven, helping to coordinate our midweek community groups. And in my other job, I'm the director of a local charity called Bridges for Communities, which connects people of different cultures, races, and faiths here in Bristol, seeking to build a more peaceful and cohesive society. Now, today we're starting a brand new mini-series called Mending the Divides. This is part of our wider series called Building Back Better. Uh, No connection with the campaigns by Joe Biden or the Tory party, by the way. But it's called Building Back Better because we're looking at ways that we as Seven Vineyard want to be different as we emerge out of this pandemic. And ways that we want to be intentional as we establish our new normal. This new mini-series, Mending the Divides, is going to explore some of the ways that we as a church want to be intentionally inclusive, celebrating all of the diversity that God has made in human beings and exploring the ways that we as followers of Jesus can be agents of reconciliation in our city. Today I'm going to focus on the topic of racial justice, which is a subject that many of us have been learning about over the last year. But in other parts of this series, we'll look at other areas of division and inequality. We'll be listening to different people's voices and experiences, and we'll be exploring what the Bible has to say about some of these issues. Now, through this process, my hope is that we will become clearer about some of the ways that we can respond to the issues that we discuss so that we can build back better as a more welcoming, inclusive, and fairer church, and one that plays a bigger role in mending some of the divides that we see around us. I want to suggest that two passages of Scripture serve as our foundation for this series. Firstly, Galatians 3, verse 26 to 28, where Paul says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In these verses, each of the pairings represents a division that existed at the time, with one party believing themselves to be superior to the other and with this belief systemically reinforced in the society of their day. But Paul rejects their divisions and he confronts their racism, Jew and Gentile, their elitism, slave and free, and their sexism, male and female. And he states that we are all God's children. In God's eyes, we are all equal. What a fantastic anchor to tie our ship to in the swirling seas of opinion and hostility that is today's world. Secondly, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, where Paul describes the role that we can be playing in making things better and in bringing change. He says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
With these two passages as our foundation, we can move towards areas of difference and division, knowing that God's desire and God's purpose is to bring reconciliation and healing. And so with that starting point, I want us to look again today at the topic of racial justice. And as we do that, perhaps I should start by addressing the elephant in the room. I'm a white, middle-class man, so I'm hardly the natural choice to speak about disadvantage and inequality. I am well and truly part of majority culture and the beneficiary of multiple layers of privilege. I don't have any problem saying that. And I acknowledge, therefore, the limitations of my lived experience and my perspectives. Perhaps I'm one of those who's had to do more work than others. So what I'm sharing today, I'm sharing very much as a learner, passing on some of my reflections from this last year or so. And as I do that, I recognize that I probably won't get it all right. I may unintentionally offend someone, you may disagree with my opinions, I may say things incorrectly or naively. Please forgive me if I do, and please know that my intention is just to keep the conversation about race going and to not let it become a thing of the past. You see, it's almost exactly a year since George Floyd, an unarmed African-American, died in Minneapolis, Minnesota, after a white police officer knelt on his neck for almost nine minutes. It was the 25th of March last year when he was handcuffed and lying face down at the time, he repeatedly told the four officers, I can't breathe. The images and video of his death, along with the deaths of other black people like Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, sparked a wave of protests that spread around the world, coming together in over 400 cities under the slogan, Black Lives Matter. Our city of Bristol came under the intense spotlight of the international media as the statue of Edward Colston, one of the main figures and beneficiaries in the transatlantic slave trade, was torn down just a few hundred meters from where we'd normally gather as a church on a Sunday. So these events did not feel far off and were almost impossible to ignore. And for me and for many others, they catalyzed a, a learning curve about perceptions of race and experiences of racism. It made us pay attention, particularly those of us who are white, to the experiences of race and racism that people of color have had in this country and to some of the ways that our country's past have contributed towards those. It hasn't always been an easy or comfortable journey, but it became pretty clear that change will only happen if we all take responsibility for our own ignorance, bias, and complicity, and if we do the hard work of examining our view of the world, examining our ways of thinking, and examining our hearts. So here at Seven, we've revisited this topic of race a number of times during the year. In one of our online gatherings, Claire and Owen interviewed two of our members, Sarah Dodd and Miles Connor, and that was a brilliant insight into their lived experiences as people of black and mixed race heritage. As part of the recent series on Paul, Owen looked at the teachings of the Bible with regards to slavery. And in a separate talk, Is Peace Really Possible? He looked in more depth at the way that Jesus has made reconciliation between people possible. 
So hopefully today's talk doesn't feel like the first time that we're addressing this subject. And my intention is to build on what has gone before. We want to be in this for the long haul and we recognize that change isn't gonna happen overnight. So how can we approach this issue and other ones like it where there is complexity and nuance and pain and different opinions to navigate? Well, in this book, Mending the Divides, from which I've taken the series title, the authors, John Huckins and Joe Swigart, present a four-part framework, which I think is really helpful for understanding how we can respond to issues of injustice and to this journey that we're on. And the four parts or stages are see, immerse, contend, and restore. These four phrases are in a very deliberate order. They begin with seeing, with having our eyes opened and choosing to allow God to show us injustices and inequalities in our society and allow us to see people that are affected by them. Second is the process of immersing ourselves in that issue, of learning, of researching, of listening, of building relationship, and deepening our understanding of the issue that's in front of us. Third is contend, it's engaging in action, it's activism, it's speaking up and speaking out. But the authors are very clear about this. They say, here's the bottom line, we can't contend until we've spent significant time immersing ourselves in the role of learners rather than heroes. Immersion requires us to linger, to be present day in and day out, and listen longer than feels comfortable. Immersion requires that we intentionally displace ourselves so we have the eyes to see the people and places we have been taught not to see. And then fourthly, it is restore which is the ongoing work of joining with God in what he's doing as he restores all things, as he makes all things new. Now, for me, I would say that last spring was a moment where I began to see the issue of racism in a new way. It wasn't the first time that I'd seen it, as my work with Bridges over the years has made me aware of ways that racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, affect different people and different communities. But it opened my eyes to some of the ways that people of color experience racism that I had previously been blind to. And I know that many around the country felt the same. I believe that we're now in the process of immersing, of learning and deepening our understanding of the issue so that we can consider what our role is and how we are to respond. And I'll say a little bit more about what we're doing and things that we can be doing in that phase later. But before we do that, I think it's important to say a few things about what we have seen and to speak plainly about them. So the first thing to acknowledge is that racism is part of our history. Before we can move forwards in the area of racial justice, there needs to be a better understanding and a proper recognition of the role that racism played in getting us to where we are today. Over this last year, there have been some brilliant resources, books, TV programs, articles that have shed light on this and have highlighted the ways that Britain as we know it today benefited enormously 
from the systems of colonialism, empire and slavery. Programs like Black and British by David Olashoga, Michael Portillo's Empire Journey, Samuel L. Jackson's Enslaved, books like Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge, and so many more have shown us that the versions of history that we as Brits may have told ourselves, that the empire brought civilization to developing countries, etc., those versions are problematic and overly simplistic, and they overlook the massive damage and cost to people who suffered for the sake of our economic gain. It almost goes without saying, though we need to say it, that our own city's history has been massively shaped by the legacy of slavery and empire and racism. This is part of our national history and our city's history. Sadly, it's also part of the history of the church. The Bible has been used to condemn slavery, but it has also been used to condone it and even support it. I'd always wondered how that could be the case. But Ben Lindsay, a black British Christian and the author of this excellent book, We Need to Talk About Race, explains that one of the key passages that Europeans used to justify the enslavement of Africans was Genesis 9, 24 to 27. Now in that story, one of Noah's sons, Ham, who is the father of Canaan, sees Noah naked when he's drunk. And this, of course, is the source of great shame. The passage says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brother. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. European Christians used these verses to justify treating black people in the most inhumane ways because, according to tradition, Africans were descendants of Canaan, descendants of Ham. They argued that God had created the institution of human bondage, that this arrangement was to be perpetuated through all time, and that the curse singled out dark-skinned Africans for perpetual service to the white race. I was stunned when I read this. I was shocked and couldn't believe that verses about a curse uttered by a drunk man who was ashamed of his nakedness could be used to justify generations of trading in human flesh. But sadly, that was the case. In 1807, the Parliamentary Act for the Abolition of Slavery was eventually passed, and Britain's role began to change. But the echoes of those years of slavery still reach us, still impacting the lived experiences of people today. In 1948, the Empire Windrush was the first ship to arrive in the UK from Jamaica, bringing people who came in response to an invitation to help rebuild the country after the war. But far from being welcomed, they encountered hostility. They found it difficult to find jobs, and signs blatantly told them no coloreds or no West Indians. Sadly, some churches told them the same thing. In 1963, a local youth worker here in Bristol called Paul Stevenson 
began a campaign with other members of the black community to challenge the Bristol Omnibus Company, which is now known as First Buses, about their unofficial policy barring black people from working at the company. After two years of campaigning, the bus company eventually agreed to end its unofficial color bar and said the only criteria will be the person's suitability for the job. That same year, 1965, the first Race Relations Act was passed across the whole UK, making it illegal to discriminate on the basis of someone's colour. This no doubt had an impact on reducing some of the more blatant forms of racism, but as we know from listening to our friends who are people of colour, it certainly wasn't able to root out the hidden prejudices and the more nuanced expressions of racism that continued. Now, two common objections normally surface at this point. But Dan, we can't just dwell on the past. That won't get us anywhere. And, but Dan, I wasn't there. So how can you put any responsibility on me? And in response, I would again quote the author Ben Lindsay, who says, for Christians, there is clearly a tension between the biblical concept of individual accountability and the Christian obligation to pursue justice. Since the effects of slavery are still felt today to the benefit of the descendants of slave owners and to the detriment of the descendants of slaves, it cannot be an option to leave events of history in the past. We must seek to repair the damage. And he says elsewhere, you can't repair something until, how, until you've learned how you broke it in the first place. So probably, properly acknowledging and understanding our past is vital, but we also need to acknowledge that racism is part of our present. On July 22nd last year, a 21-year-old young black man known as Kay was attacked in Southmead shortly after finishing his shift as an NHS worker. Two men deliberately drove their car into Kay, shouted racist abuse at him, then ran from the car once he was stuck on a wall, profusely bleeding, having suffered a number of serious injuries. This was one shocking incident, but sadly it was not an isolated one. Avon and Somerset Police reported a 20% increase in hate crime motivated by race last year, with 72% of all hate crime reported being linked with race. A significant number of Bristolians were impacted by the recent Windrush scandal, and suffered at the hands of the government's efforts to deport people in order to meet their immigration targets, though they had arrived in the country freely as subjects of the British Empire and had lived, there, lived here ever since. In total, at least 850 people were wrongfully detained, and at least 83 of them deported, despite their apparent right to live here. In 2017, the Runnymede report identified Bristol as one of the worst cities when it came to racial inequality. And the pandemic this year has exposed some of the ways that those inequalities in our city play out. So at Bridges, we're now based in Easton, and a lot of our interactions are with members of black and minority ethnic communities. Many of them refugees and asylum seekers, but others as well through our peace feasts and our school linking project and other initiatives. And members of black and minority ethnic communities have been 
affected at a much greater rate by COVID than white communities. And all of the research that I've read on this indicates that it is not because of some genetic disposition or weakness, but it's due to the impact of multiple layers of disadvantage, including lower income, which leads to less healthy diet, more crowded housing, living in more congested and therefore more polluted neighborhoods, all of those leading to a higher prevalence of underlying health conditions. And then the numbers of people from those communities working in front-facing jobs as NHS staff and as other key workers, which exposes them to greater risk. Those are not factors that only affect black and minority ethnic communities, of course, but because the statistics show that black and minority ethnic communities are more likely to live in those kind of areas and circumstances and do those kind of jobs, they have been more vulnerable to this virus. These disparities and the blatant actions suffered by K and the subtle ways that unconscious bias impacts people's opportunities for employment, etc. They're all ways that people of color experience racism today. And that's a situation that none of us should be okay with. So racism is part of our past, it's part of our present. And we've also, I think, learned that language matters. As with any subject that is complex, nuanced and sensitive, the language that we use to discuss it really is really important. In many ways, language is all that we have. It's how we express all of our thoughts and opinions. The problem with language is that what the listener understands from a certain word or phrase isn't always exactly what the speaker means or what they intend by using that certain word or phrase. So I don't know about you, but I feel like I've had to learn a whole new set of vocabulary around the topic of race this year. And I don't have time during this talk, but if you find the recording of this talk on the website, under the resources section, then you'll also find another short video where I've recorded a short whistle-stop tour of some of the key terms and phrases around this topic, and what I think they mean and what I think they don't mean. So phrases like Black Lives Matter, systemic racism, white privilege, white fragility, colorblindness, anti-racist, they, they're all covered briefly in that video. So please have a look if you'd like to. So if those are some of the things that we've learned as we've come to see this issue more clearly this year, what are some of the things that we can be doing as part of the next phase as we immerse ourselves in this issue? Well, here are a few thoughts. First of all, we lament and we repent. As we acknowledge what we have seen, we have the opportunity for two very biblical responses. To lament, to allow ourselves to sit with the issue and mourn what is broken and unjust around us, as well as mourn with those that suffer as a result. And secondly, to repent, to say sorry for the ways that our ignorance, our conscious and unconscious choices have caused pain to others. And in a few minutes at the end of the service, I'll invite you to join me in a prayer that includes those two biblical responses to injustice. Secondly, we see ways in which we must change. We know that the church is meant to be at the forefront of issues of social justice. It's meant to be a signpost, an example of God's kingdom,
a place where all are God's children, as we saw in Galatians, and so all are welcomed and all play their part. And so at seven, we can already start to identify areas where we'd like to see change. We love the diversity that we have at seven. I think at the last count, we have people from about 15 different nations who call seven their church, but we recognize that we're not fully representative of the city we're in. We are a majority white church, and we'd love to grow in, a, in our diversity so that we're a better reflection of the reconciling work that Jesus has done. As a staff team, we're committed to growing in this area and we will be exploring ways that we can do this. Thirdly, we can build relationship. This has been a little bit difficult during the pandemic with all of the limitations on meeting, etc. But as we come out of lockdown, we'll have more opportunities to get to know others in the city who are directly impacted by racial injustice, to spend time with them and to learn to walk a while in their shoes. As Huckins and Swigert say, immersion invites us to slow down and pursue relationship rather than a quick fix. It is there that we're reminded of our shared beauty and brokenness. As one step towards this, I've been getting to know the pastors of one of our nearest church neighbors in the city, Fatima and Ossian Sabanda. They lead God's House, which meets at the Premier Inn, just a stone's throw away from the station. And in one of our upcoming episodes, I'll be interviewing them about their experiences, about the community they lead and about the ways that they're impacted by this topic of racial justice. And that leads me on to the fourth point. We can listen. Look, the fact that I've had the microphone today and I'm doing all the talking is a form of power and racism is partly about power. So one of the ways that we can start to redress this imbalance as we immerse in the issue is to spend more of our time listening. That's why I thought it was so great at the recent Vineyard National Gathering that Debbie Wright, who leads the Vineyard in the UK with her husband, John, interviewed a lady called Jo Saxton about her personal experiences of racism and about her thoughts on what the church needs to be thinking about as we respond. I'd love to encourage you to watch that interview using the link below to listen to Jo because she has some brilliant insights into how this is going to be a long process. She reminds us that while it's great, some of us have recently had our eyes open to these issues, people of color have been aware of them and living with the reality of them for years. She warns us that we may feel vulnerable in this process and that it's going to require humility. And she challenges us that diversity isn't the same as inclusion and equity. Diversity doesn't mean people are invited to the, the table or share the same power. So I'd love you to check that out.